Welcome to ATBS The Podcast, where we drop weekly episodes for the curious, engaged, and open-minded among us. Topics have ranged from the river of life to epigenetics, and from nutritional mushrooms to spontaneous guided meditation. If you're a new listener, welcome. I encourage you to explore the library of past episodes. My guest today is a living legend, and her name is Lynn Hill. John Krakauer, author of Into Thin Air, describes her thus. Lynn Hill isn't just one of the best female climbers in the world. She is among the greatest rock climbers of all time. Enough said. Let's dive in with Lynn Hill. All right. Lynn Hill, welcome to ATBS, the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's an honor. It's really mine. I think I, well, it's good to feel that way on both fronts. You and I have face-to-face met last winter, winter of 2020 in Jackson Hole when you were doing a presentation on your book and your background and your your life, really. But before that, I was out in California and a buddy of mine and I were going up into the Sierra to do some winter camping with a guide. And my buddy got a little bit sick with the altitude and we ended up watching Valley Uprising and... That was my first introduction to Lynn Hill and your name and your accomplishments. And, you know, here we are some years later and after having the privilege of meeting you last year and, and then um, being able to be on and have a conversation and and see what comes of it. I'm I'm really grateful and I'm glad we've stuck with it and, and are able to get together this morning. Yes, it seems like so long ago and it was just over a year ago when we met. I know. It seems time is a very interesting thing in our world today, like what everybody's been going through for the past 10 months and and how it can feel like a lifetime and it can feel like, you know, a blink of an eye. But I mean, you were in Jackson, was that after Christmas last year? Was it pre-Christmas or? No, it was in January. I think it was mid-January. Yeah, just a year. Just a year. Amazing. Just over a year. It just feels a long time because a lot has changed in the world and I don't think it was on anyone's radar at that point about COVID. So, yeah, think of the things that we did. Yeah, think of the things that we did in the literally in the few months and weeks leading just right up to when the world changed in mid March. A month later, I was in California for a holotropic breathwork workshop with Stan Groff and his wife in Oakland, California, in like the third week in February, right? Like, and if it had been a couple of weeks later, it wouldn't have happened, right? And but we didn't know any, we didn't know anything, no awareness of what was coming our way, which I guess is very much like life, isn't it? Yep, certainly is. We don't know what's coming. <laughs> As somebody said, you don't have to hope for change; it's coming. <laughs> that's the only thing that's guaranteed is change. We know that. We know that for sure. I guess you know by way of a little bit of background. Would you be comfortable going back a ways in your life and just kind of, I watched the documentary, so I have some familiarity. And sometimes I think I'd love the listeners to get a sense for, you know, kind of who's Lynn Hill? Where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? What was your life like? I know you got into climbing and and I know that was early and, and, but I'm curious. Sure. So I guess the brief story is I grew up in Southern California in a large family. I was the fifth born of seven kids. And my mom had me when she was 24. Then she had two more after me until she was 28. So she was, you know, busy for many years. You can imagine growing up in a large family, 
you become more independent, responsible for yourself, or you ask a sibling, you just get used to figuring things out. Or there could also be that in my particular case, I had this sort of independent personality from the get-go. So that lent itself to outdoor activities and curiosity of nature. My parents believed in taking us on camping trips. So we piled into a station wagon, no seatbelts, of course, back in those days. (laughs) How did we ever make it? Well, you know, we just didn't get in an accident. So that was good. We had some epics. My mom, whenever she would say, we're going to have an adventure, that meant flat tire or something stranded in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Occasionally that sort of thing would happen. So I grew up in Fullerton, California. That's Orange County. Not necessarily proud of what that means to a lot of people, the material sort of money world, but it was something that I never knew any different, but I felt like it wasn't me. So when I discovered climbing at the age of 14, luckily through my older sister, she's a little bit less than five years older than me, and she had a boyfriend that saw a notice in an outdoor shop for like free lessons to learn how to repel and belay. Of course, the shop wanted to sell gear. So they had some cement block in a parking lot and La Cunada, and it worked. He bought a bunch of gear and started teaching himself, then brought me along after they'd been climbing for about three years. But they kind of knew that I was going to love climbing because I already had a reputation of doing weird things like climbing the light pole, like using this sort of like coconut tree style clamping of my feet and <laughs> hugging the, the pole and bringing my legs up, you know, just sort of like, who would have thought of that? You know, it was just sort of, there's weird Linny out there climbing up trees and telephone pole or light poles, whatever, catching snakes and lizards in the fields. And I love being out in nature and I, I love those kinds of activities. So I was called a tomboy, of course. And so I guess I embraced that and it seemed like a little bit of an insult. Like I was less of a girl because I like to do these things. Thankfully, times have changed and, and young girls like me are called athletes and, you know, they have a talent and it's like not a bad thing, you know? (laughs) So I, I wasn't deterred. I just accepted, okay, I'm different. That's fine, but I'm happy this way. And I think that was kind of an additional strength in the face of maybe you would call it slight adversity, or at least being judged in a way that a lot of people probably wouldn't like. You know, A lot of people just want to be like everybody else, and it bothers them that they're not, but it didn't bother me. And so climbing was the perfect activity for me, being outside, being able to create your own way, choreographing your own movements. Obviously, being a small person, I would do things different than most people around me, And again, I didn't look to how they were doing things. I would have to figure it out for myself. So that was another thing that sort of reinforced a independent and um, creative thinking kind of approach to life, which I feel like with Google and all these devices that we have, we're getting less accountable to this sort of thinking and and creating, unless you really have a, a passion in something art or you know, something that you really love that pushes you into that realm. A little scary, actually. I think that's really well said. I think we can probably come back to that as you continue on, you know, circle back to two things that I just wrote down. One, you know, tomboy, what used to be tomboy now equals athlete. 
right? Like young women who are, you know, physically driven and creative and figuring things out, you know, oh, athlete. You know, I have a daughter who's who's an athlete. Both of them are very athletic. One of them really dives into it and, you know, wears it incredibly proudly, mm-hmm. right? Like strong and and stand up and and work at it. And people will say, wow, you you got a lot of muscles on there. <laughs> you know, she's proud of it, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a hindrance. It seems to be a, you know, a benefit. Well, when I was a little girl, I do remember guys making comments like, oh, she looks like a guy. Look at all those muscles. And I always was proud of it. I thought it looked cool. And and if you really step back from, you know, our society that has evolved over many years, think about the human animal in nature. If, if you couldn't fend for yourself, you would die. We are the survivors. I mean, we are we were selected to do these things. <laughs> yeah. And to your point, you know, what is it that's driving perception of what is beautiful, what is healthy? what is admirable, what is something that we'd like to emulate. Well, you know, strength and character and and ability, capability, um, abilities, um, all, right? Like that would be desirable so that we could continue the species, right? Like on a, on a real hardwired level, it's great. You throw in some, a whole crap load of social media and and twisted, bizarre ways of looking at ourselves and it becomes something else. Yeah. Well, I think as long as we have balance in our life too, between what we do to feel good and, and be happy and contribute and, you know, the sort of give and take aspects of life. And I don't think you could be happy just being on one side of that. And it's just like, you know, for every effort you put out there in an activity to get better, you feel that much better about yourself. Even maybe it adds kind of like momentum to your life once you have success and you find that that kind of engagement helps you evolve, then how could that not be a good thing for the world? Unless it becomes, I guess, an obsession and it's not a healthy thing. Obviously, I'm talking about things that bring meaning and value to the world. It's not like you're just doing things to, you know, do them because you've been told, you know, like war, for example, go out and kill those people. And then you have to do that in your own, well, I mean, some people don't do it, but that would be an example of just following something that doesn't make sense. And it never did to me. I don't understand why we live in times where there's this thing called war. It makes absolutely no sense to me. Yeah, I agree. It does not make sense. It seems as though we've evolved beyond that, but then in some ways, and this is a much different or deeper, who knows where this would go, but we have devolved. And certainly over the past handful of years, we've all experienced this divisiveness and, you know, all the things that we're all familiar with, regardless of where we stand on the political spectrum. But some of it feels like we have devolved versus continued to evolve. It seems like, I'm hopeful, that we as a species are a bit more aware of where we fit into the big picture, whether that be universal, cosmic, global, human family. <clears throat> and I'm curious what you think. You, I mean, I feel it. Um, I talk about it a lot. Well, I think that there's an evolution that's been going on as far back as we can conceive, really. Humans 200 years ago 
were very barbaric and didn't treat each other very well. And, you know, there were a lot of things that have evolved on technology and health and longevity and balance that I talked about, eating good foods and sleeping and things that nourish us. We now are a society that can have the luxury to, you know, do things like get massages and have all these supplements that might help you become stronger immune-wise or whatever. We have so many different aids in our world now. And I'd say on a more important level, we relate to each other better. Not all people, and obviously there's struggles in the world over usually the same things, power and greed, who has control of it is most of the struggle, but the power has to do with the resources as well. So, you know, that is sort of a age old struggle between tribes of people. Maybe there was some disagreements about who had use of land or whatever, but I do think we're evolving. That's the short answer to what you're saying. I think that each generation brings something new. Maybe there's some step backs that you were saying that, you know, it seems like we've devolved on some levels. And that's just because power gets out of balance, I think, and the wrong things are rewarded. If we all agreed on what's the right direction, we would set up a system that rewards that instead of rewarding just the bottom line of the dollar or, you know, decisions that are made that don't really reflect the moral values of the situation. Mm, There's a lot to contemplate in those few statements right there. Hey, you guys, it's Sharpie. I'm the guest from episode number 20. I like to travel to the edge of the known universe and peer over the edge to see what's out there. It's sort of like digging below the surface, tapping into the electromagnetic network of fungi and tree roots to try and figure out what they're talking about. Spread the word to anyone who you think may be interested in expanding their horizon and growing their universe. Thanks, guys. Tune in soon. This episode will come out, I think, on Monday, the 25th of January. We're recording on Wednesday, the 20th of January. And I, I was just watching the inauguration. It just happened. The first woman to hold the office of vice president of the United States of America. That, to me, is incredibly inspiring and just in and of itself. And uh, the first woman of color and the first Asian and the, of Asian descent. And, and, so, and, then, and then the last thing I watched was this young woman who is the youth poet laureate. And oh my goodness, the words and the ability to articulate and share a message. I was so full of hope. I don't know. I think it's a time for optimism and a time for healing. And I have this idea in my head. We talked about it a little bit the other day in our, what I'll call a precast conversation, where I just think it's time to celebrate, celebrate humanity one. But really in my world, I was raised by very strong women. I came into a family of very capable, independent, strong women, my mother, my grandmother, my great grandmother. And I married a very strong woman and, you know, have daughters who I think fall into that category. Something in my world is bringing me to, you know, thinking about, you know, okay, can I, I'd like to, you know, celebrate women who are humans who happen to be women doing incredible things. And I'd love to connect. This is really the first time I've mentioned it on the, on the podcast. And I'm so grateful that you're here 
I'm looking at your website, Lynn, and I'm curious, it looks like your book, is your book out of, just out of print at the moment, Climbing Free or? Well, that's unclear. According to my agent, she says there are some available through Amazon. I don't see any new copies or I haven't in a while. You can buy used copies. So I'm interested in possibly doing something, either doing a second edition where I correct some of the errors that weren't corrected the first time, even though I spent the time to actually edit my own book. And I gave the answers to the editor and she didn't take them all. So there's that. And then there's the last 20 years that could be another chapter. I'd say. Yeah. So there's that thought. But I have to wait until all of the books are out of print. I gotcha. Before, is that how that works? They've all got to be out of print before you can do a second edition? Before I can move forward on any of this, it sounds like. Either ebook rights, which, you know, apparently Amazon charges a lot of money for a download because it takes a lot of computer power to download a book. So ebooks are kind of like, you know, free printing. You know, you don't really make as much money. And it's a different sort of thing, having a book in your hand versus this electronic thing. I mean, mm, no, I know I do both. I read on my iPad and I, but boy, having a book in hand is so nice. You know, the tactile just here's the book. I love it. So I'm going to talk about this real quick because the things that we're talking about here, you can find out anything you'd like about Lynn Hill at lynnhillclimbing.com. First of all, like that's where you find what she's up to, who she is, what she's doing. As I mentioned, the first introduction that I had to you, Lynn, was through the documentary Valley Uprising, which is a really, I think, a pretty cool piece. So from 1979 to 2004, you know, a cool 25 years, there's this laundry list, extensive list of firsts, first free ascent, first ascent, things that you did before anybody else. And let's talk briefly about 1993-94, first person to free climb the nose on El Capitan in a day. Forget whether it's male or female, just the first person. So I was basically thinking of it as a retirement gesture from the world of climbing because I'd kind of finished my competition career. It wasn't what I wanted to do as a climber. I thought it was an interesting journey. It it brought prize money and, and helped me out in a lot of ways and got to see different parts of Europe. And it was awesome. But in 1992, I was done. And so I thought, well, why don't I take this fitness and you know the ability to do trad climbing and this new sport climbing style and blend them together and do something great. And that's when the idea of trying to make the first free ascent of the nose came up. An old friend of mine, John Long, suggested that since I have small fingers, I might have a chance of free climbing this one section called the Great Roof. And ironically, it wasn't just a matter of small fingers. I did make the first free ascent and actually did it in one day. I free climbed it, red pointed it. Well, actually, it was more of a pink point, but that's a, you know, we won't get into those details. But I did it on the go from the ground up in 1993. So I, I was able to do great roof, but it really wasn't easier. And I only really understood that when I went back a couple of years ago in 2018 and 2019 to celebrate the first free ascent, which was in 93, and then all free in a day. That was a much bigger thing. So that was 94. So I went back both years 
kind of to celebrate that and to help my friend Nina Caprez try to make a free ascent, which she all but did. She was like one inch away from sending the entire route all free. But anyway, when I went back there, I, I got to see her technique and what she did. And and also this guy, uh, Jörg Verhoeven, an Austrian, came over and spent like a month hanging out in Yosemite and working out all the sequences. And he finally was able to do it. I could look and see how we did things similar and, and different. And uh, it's just funny that the Great Roof might actually be, I don't know if it's harder or easier, but it's, it's pretty long reaches in a very awkward position. Yes, my fingertips fit in a little bit better, but it's very hard to move like that when you're kind of in like an iron cross. Imagine the leverage that you don't have. <laughs> the hardest section is really high, and that's why doing it in one day was so much more difficult. 514 after climbing 2,500 feet. And it's strenuous climbing. You know, some of that crack climbing, they don't rate it very high, but it's, it's high level of physical output. And you can make it easier. And that was my whole intention the entire day, every step of the way was to make it as fluid and natural as possible. No second guessing, just, you know, breathing fluid the whole way. And then when I got to those key sections, I was super motivated because there had been no first ascents by a woman in Yosemite during the formative years of Yosemite climbing history. And that was written in the introduction to Galen Rao's book, The Vertical World in Yosemite. And he said, the first part of it was like, there are no women in this book. Um, and I, I, I make no apology here because, and then he filled in with, there were no women doing anything significant back in the day. So I thought that was, first of all, wrong because there was Beverly Johnson who teamed up with Charlie Porter, who was this amazing adventure first ascent person back in that time period. And they did the first ascent of a big wall route on El Cap called the Great Braves. So that to me is in the realm of what people were doing. It just was not published in that book. And I think that that's the first step of, you know, just the sort of benign negligence or maybe wasn't even benign. It just was overlooked. And if you don't record the history that's there, how do you expect to build that kind of history and inspire other women? So for me, it was important to show that women can do really amazing things. It's about vision. Vision is not owned by a gender. It's just a matter of your motivation. And obviously in this case, I had to be fit and I had plenty of years of experience and I knew that. I reinforced those ideas when things were difficult. And, you know, you never know when you're doing something for the first time, there's no sure anything. I mean, you could slip just like Nina did at the very last second. And we were up there for a week and we were just tired and you don't get the best nutrition up there. And so it was kind of like diminishing returns at a certain point. So, um, you know, you never know what the outcome will be, but the only thing you can do is keep trying. And there's actually a physiological response in our body. When you get tired, you actually let go before your body needs to let go. So it's your mind thinking, oh, okay, here's the signal, I'm tired. And then you, you let go. Whereas if you can overpower it for a second, you actually can hold on a little bit longer. And I think I've experienced that in climbing. Your brain just knows when to call it quits. But it is a little bit before you actually need to. 
sorry to interrupt, but that has come up a number of times in a number of conversations that I've had. And it's fascinating. One, it came up with in a different way, but I, I did a, an early episode with um, Billy DeMong, five-time Olympian Nordic combined skier, all around badass, like, you know, the human lung sort of guy, right? Like just push, push, push. And we talked about that. Does the mind give out first or does the body give out first? And he shared an example of being able to look down on his physical body, you know, when he was at the very, you know, like just ready to crumble, if you will, and almost have that out of body experience and be able to, you know, so it, it's interesting. I've heard it a little bit both ways. My daughter, Taylor, is a crew athlete and, you know, there's a point in in every crew race, most of them are two kilometers long, where you know, you've given everything that you've got to give, but there's still 200 meters to go and it's just blackout, right? It's just everything. And so it's fascinating to me, the mind, the body, as you just said, like the mind says you need to let go now, but your body can go further. Yes, a small margin. So I do think that you can be stronger in your mind and keep trying. And sometimes it's just enough and it's amazing. It does feel a little bit like magic when that happens you've gone into a different realm, like your friend talking about being out of body, looking at his body. And I, I've felt that, in, especially in endurance sports. I've been skate skiing lately, and it's reminding me of that too. Because, you know, the first, I don't know, half hour or something, it's cold. You're not warmed up. And it takes a bit for your lungs and heart and everything to be working in, in harmony together. And then finally, you just kind of after a lot of almost feels like resistance, it's a little almost painful. Then it's just like smooth and it just feels good again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting things rolling. What does it take to get the body physically moving? And then there's the flow. You know, we're all familiar with the idea of a flow state where it certainly sounded that way to me a little bit when you were talking about, you know, just conserving energy and being as fluid as you were able to be as you moved up El Capitan you know, so that you could conserve for when you really needed to dig in, right? But it sounded like you must have been in there to accomplish that. You had to get to the flow state, I would think. Yes. And then in the critical moments, I really needed to believe and have a lot of faith in what I was doing. And that was the meaning of this ascent, which I knew was beyond like a personal satisfaction. It was really to communicate a message to other people, to inspire people. Because I knew I was early on in this climbing game, and it's been a privilege to be at that cutting edge for so long, you know, from 1975 when I started, just to watch how it's developed and to play a part in that. You know, it seemed obvious to me that girls can do things. And, you know, if you just look at my childhood and even hearing stories from my mother and things that she said that just were shocking to me. You know, like, really, it was like that for girls. They had to sit there and do craft activities. They couldn't go out and do any outdoor activities. You know, there's just a lot of unfair things. And just, it was set up in a way that wasn't natural, according to the way that I feel is healthy is all. So let's talk a little bit about when you're climbing, you're going to come into some situations that you're just going to have to find a solution and, and keep moving, right? You have a couple choices. You can either... You stop, you pause, you assess the situation, you accept the red flag, which would be you're tired, you're confused, you don't know what to do. You kind of have to accept that without spending too much of your emotional energy and time thinking about that or engaging in that. You have to take that as, okay, 
expand your vision, go broad, and you can sometimes find other things that you wouldn't have seen in your tunnel vision, which is what happens when you are tired or stressed or something like that. Your vision narrows. So you have to stop and look around for the solution and don't go until you're ready, until you know what to do. Because if you go with this idea that you're confused or you're tired, that's what you're doing. You're giving up on that. And if you stop, accept that and find a solution and really see it, like in your mind's eye, as these things happen in these little meta thoughts, and you wait until it's a, a positive go, then you're most likely to be successful in whatever move or difficulty you're in. I'm going to try and tie this back in together with this particular ascent. And as you said, thought you thought of it as kind of a swan song, as a retirement gesture, an inspiration to other women, 1993, 1994. If I have this correctly, no one else was able to accomplish the same thing for another decade after you accomplished it. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think a little over a decade. That's like a hard pause for me. That's a real, that's a holy shit. Wow. And I think anybody who's listening, and you and I talked about this last week, like I have this idea of celebrating women and and connecting women and and strong, capable, independent women in the world. And that feat, if you will, that motivation, that drive, that accomplishment, it's not like you just did it and then somebody else came along shortly thereafter. A decade plus is a long freaking time before any other human, male or female, accomplished the same feat. So I recognize that and I hope that listeners will be like, okay, wait a second. What is, you can go, you can look on lindhillclimbing.com, you can go look at Valley Uprising, you can go and learn and hopefully, you know, no doubt people will be inspired. I know I am. And so I just wanted to say that. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. It came up in the press that this other colleague, young woman that I've watched grow up here in Boulder, she was on the ABC kids climbing team and really strong. And I encouraged her to get outside because I could see that's what she wanted to do. And she's very accomplished. She's done everything from hard boulder problems, 514B on the rock on short sport routes. And she's done Mount Everest as well as some El Cap routes. But they not only got it wrong about, you know, she was the first woman to do this, but they actually overlooked another thing that I think is even more important. And that is that it was a woman who authored that first. It wasn't a man. The whole idea of doing an LCAP route free in a day, like a big wall LCAP route. We're not talking about the shoulder routes that you can easily do in a day. We're talking about, you know, the ones on the main face there, the South Buttress. That wasn't mentioned either. It was first done by a woman, period. And I think that's something that the climbing world has been slow to recognize because it's not like other sports journals. There's no like, well, actually there is this thing called 8a.mu and it's a online company and you can report everything you've done. So you could actually compare yourself to other people across the world, but you know, the specific routes that you do would be more regional. Like, you know, you can't compare Adam Ondra who can go all over the world and lives in Czech Republic. You know, he, you're not going to be able to go and, and check out his latest test piece, but you get points for the number of difficult routes you do. So there is a scale that people can look at, but it's a totally different thing. 
you know, collecting points for hard performances is what it's all about. <laughs> well, in getting it right, you know, we live in this time in, in history, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, where, you know, you can go out and, and get information and assume that it's accurate. <laughs> it's easy to assume that if you see something in print, whether, you know, online or something, that it's that it's accurate. And it's not always being reported accurately or, you know, tracked accurately. So I guess that's one of the real fun things about what we're doing here. You know, podcast allows us to dig in and, and share, you know, not right some wrongs, but just, you know, again, I think there's a real inspiring story here, which, I mean, you're inspiring. I'm going to have a, another recording tomorrow, and I'm recording with a woman named Holly Austin. And she's one of my daughter's crew coaches, one of those people in somebody's life who just flips the switch, right? Like turned my daughter on completely through a couple of workshops and, and you know, weekend clinics and things like that. And then Taylor has gotten to know her over the years. And, and many of the top ranked crew athletes, female, are creeping up on six feet tall. And so size is a thing, right? Holly is undersized by that measurement, right? And she is an absolute badass, right? So undersized, you know, rode at, a, at an Ivy League Division One women's crew team for years and, and has done amazing things. And undersized actually is probably a really crappy term. <laughs> I don't know what term would be accurate. Small, small right? Side. Like you're five feet, two inches tall. Is that Not right? Not even. Five, one and a half. <laughs> Five, one and a half. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, mm, overcoming or just using your skills that you have, that you've honed to your advantage enough with like, here's the measurement. And if you're not this, then you can't be that, which is bullshit for anybody, male or female, young or old, holds no water. It can be challenging, but we have amazing ability to compensate and be really strong in other areas that depending on your body type, you may not be able to have that strength. And that's certainly true in climbing. A small climber has less weight to carry. The tendons and ligaments that have to hold on to these tiny, tiny little features are relatively stronger for me and obviously better leverage because the shorter your fingers and, and legs, arms, the better leverage you have. But on the other hand, you can't reach as far. And sometimes you can't jump to a hold. And if there aren't any tiny little intermediates that you can use to make your body span that distance, then you know it can be kind of difficult to overcome certain moves. But that's probably true for everybody. You know, Certain types of moves will be hard no matter who you are. On the wall and in life, right? Yeah. And, and so the point of my route, again, was about not dwelling on whether you had a small finger or small fingers or any of those things, just like, yeah, okay, well, there were things that were more difficult because I was small. And then there were things that, yeah, maybe my fingers did fit a little bit better into these small cracks in, in one spot. And then, you know, I fit into the crux pitch, which is 514. I fit inside this corner but it was really difficult and awkward to make that work also. And if you were taller, you could reach your feet out to these other footholds that I couldn't reach. So there was just different ways of approaching it. And then there were some similarities. Some people did certain moves like me. I think Tommy Caldwell 
He was the first person to actually repeat it. He watched my footage and ended up doing it a lot like me, although I'm not sure that that was the easiest way for him, you know, having seen other people do it. Anyway, the point is still adapt with what you have and and make that work. Do your best. You're working on a project that's been ongoing for quite some time, Lynn. Fundamental elements of climbing, is that accurate? Well, I'm calling it the climbing workshop just to make it simple, but it's really defining and showing the mechanics of movement in climbing and trying to explain the strategy, the precision involved and how we hang on to holds, how we orient and align our bodies on the rock, just to kind of just show what I've discovered in my life as a climber to make it a little bit more clear for people who don't know anything about climbing, like what is the goal? What is good technique? People don't have any idea what technique is in climbing if they don't know the body positions, first of all. So I think it's a useful video, especially for people who don't know a lot about climbing, but then there's things in there that they won't even understand until they've been climbing a little while. I know last year when we met, you were working on it. When we talked last week, sounds like you're closing in on maybe not absolute completion, but it sounds like you're you're closing in on on being able to put this out into the world. Yes. Yeah, so what I'm I'm finishing the narration, which is tricky because I have the examples of the concepts and that I had to think about, then film and then edit so that it makes sense, and then write the narration so that you're hearing what you're seeing and it, it all makes sense. But the other thing that I'm doing is putting graphic elements. So points, planes, vectors, and arcs. Those are the four different elements that you'll see and a few others, line vectors and things like this. And that's something that had to be created as well. I guess it's a physical manifestation of some of the concepts that I think about when I'm climbing. I think about the alignments and I see things in a certain way. So I'm making graphics that I will overlay on the footage. Sometimes you have to stop frame and say, okay, here's how it's working. I'm pushing here and pulling there at this time so that you can actually understand what's going on. So that's taken some time to create. And that is the last phase. We've already done many of the graphics, but it was done a couple of years ago. And since then, my video editor has gotten better at that. And so he wants to maybe rethink certain graphics, but the concepts are there. And I think it does work. It does help to understand the mechanics of movement. So the climbing workshop is going to be, in some ways, a culmination of a, a lifetime of climbing and fine-tuning your craft. I imagine where are people going to be able to find that when it is available? Through my website probably will be the reference. And I'm not sure if I'll use Vimeo or another platform to be able to view the footage. So you'll pay a one-time fee probably just to be able to access it for as many times as you want. Right. And I think it'll actually be a good educational video for even like institutions teaching climbing or even sometimes there's parks and recreation kind of programs at universities and they have some topics that would be similar to this, the teaching of whatever sport. And then the American Mountain Guides Association, and there's another one too, the, the Professional Guides Association, they teach you how to keep people alive, of course, how to set up the anchors and make sure that you're doing things safely, but they don't really talk about 
how to teach people to climb. Partly, it's, it's just really difficult to be simple about that when you're actually out on the rock. And you can only say very simple things to people while they're climbing because they can't process it. So that's actually why I, I decided to do the video is that I would be saying things to people and I'd have a clear picture in my mind of what that meant, but I knew that they didn't have any idea what I was talking about in terms of these visual aids. People could watch it in a thinking state of mind so that when I say something simple like, oh, you know, rock over onto your right foot, what does that mean? You know what that means. You have a visual of that action and you can access it a lot quicker. I imagine when you're on the rock, there's our comfort zone and then there's the learning zone and then there's kind of the panic zone. And if we're anywhere near the panic zone, we're not able to integrate what we're hearing or what we're trying to execute. The brain shuts off. I think there's an interplay between different states of mind and different focus. There's planning process that you're looking at the route, you're seeing the whole route, and then you're planning two moves in advance. You can't really see much beyond that. One of the reasons you only plan those two moves is that you've got this feedback of what is your body sensing? Am I swinging to the left or am I out of balance? Should I stick a foot out over there? So you've got to be aware of certain things that inform you about what to look for in terms of features on the face for a foot or a hand. Usually you're scanning the route and seeing handholds, especially if there's chalk on them, you'll see them. And so you can see the geometric configuration and that informs how you turn, which way you face, which hand or foot you put up first. And I'm always looking for the most stable configuration. So a triangle, that would be a very stable three points while lifting a hand or reaching up to another hold or stepping up to another hold. You have three points of contact on the rock at all times. Well, actually that's not true, but let's just say in static climbing, what most people would do sort of in the intermediate range as opposed to, say, dynamic climbing where you're jumping and you're all points off for moments at a time. You're just leaping. And in that kind of a situation, you have to be careful of how you generate your momentum. And the moment that you let go is at the apex of your upward momentum. And then your body has to rotate into a certain alignment by the time you catch that hold so that you don't whip off, right? If you're body isn't aligned properly, you're, you're not going to be able to hang on. So there's a lot of things to think about. And so I'm showing all those things in the different scenarios, whether it be a slab, low angle, a vertical face, dihedral, which is a corner, an arete, an overhanging roof, or ultimately what I love to climb, overhanging limestone or any overhanging face that has like stalactites, that would be limestone. Things that are just bizarrely unpredictable and three-dimensional. It makes it more interesting. Are you anticipating when this will be available to the general public? I'm hoping within the next two months. I'm going to really shoot for a month. I just met with my video editor and I think we have a couple more things to record in the audio because I want to add just a couple more things that I thought would be good, especially for small people. People always ask me, how do you get past big moves? And there's, there's several different techniques. You bring your feet up high in the face, you use intermediate holds. And this one example that I have, I bring my feet up to like imperceptibly small holds, but I had to bring them up to this higher position and then spring up and, and jump to the side. 
And so you're having to anticipate momentum and coordinate this sort of jump and rotation in the air. So that's fantastic. I appreciate it. LynnHillClimbing.com is where you find out everything about Lynn. I wish you the very best. And I thank you again for joining me on ATBS, the podcast, Lynn. All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. Good luck with everything. Hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again. I look forward to it. Thanks for your interest in ATBS, the podcast, and for listening to this inspiring conversation with Lynn Hill. I'm greatly influenced by you, the listener. Your comments and feedback on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube help us to improve the podcast and guide us into the future. So keep them coming. Until next time, be safe, be smart, be kind. Peace. Peace.